Hey, man, you guys can grab a seat. Welcome to the Grove Church. My name is Caleb Brazier. I am one of the pastors here. Uh, so glad you guys are here with us this morning, surviving the, uh, the cool temperatures here in Orlando. Um, it was like 184 degrees on uh, last week, uh, but we've survived. We are all here. Uh, so I'm glad we have all survived the heat um, and uh, are in here in elementary school uh, here this morning. If you're here for the first time, we are traveling through the, the books of First and Second Samuel. Um, so one of the things that marks us here at the Grove is we're expository preachers. So what that means, the majority of time, we're just walking verse by verse, chapter by chapter through books of the Bible. And so we're here uh, in the middle of 2 Samuel, uh, rounding out here towards the back half of it in 2 Samuel 17. So a quick recap about where we've been so far. Um, uh, David, uh, King David, one of the most well-known characters in the Bible, guy that beat Goliath, uh, that was earlier in 1 Samuel, he's now become king. Uh, so he's the second king in Israel, uh, and God, at the beginning of 2 Samuel, makes this promise, or what the Bible calls a covenant, with David. That says, hey, I'm going to make this great name for your lineage, um, that your descendant uh, will become king forever. There will be this eternal kingdom that your descendant will bring forward. And it was talking ultimately about Jesus, but also in it, God promises David, I'm never going to leave you. Even if you turn away from me, or even if your descendants turn away from me, this covenant will not be broken. And so what we see not long after that is David does exactly that and breaks covenant and turns away from God. And we see David's great downfall, his great sin that was put on display for all to see in the pages of Scripture as he had an affair with this woman named Bathsheba and then murdered her husband. So a lot of people know about Goliath, not as many people outside of church know about David's great fall. And so we see then uh, this prophet named Nathan confronts him, says that, hey, David, uh, because you've done this now, there will be consequences. God's going to keep his covenant, but there will be consequences that come. And namely, that you will see violence within your own family, that the sword will not leave your family. And so there are going to be consequences of your sin. And that's what we've seen play out now for the last few chapters. And so in chapter 15, David's son, this guy named Absalom, who's going to play a big part here in this chapter, Absalom waits, kind of bides his time, gets a, a group together, and overthrows David. He wants to be king. So David's son uh, revolts and rebels against David and pushes David into exile. So in chapter 15, this is what happened. David's son takes the throne. David has to leave Jerusalem, the capital city, and go off into the wilderness so that he isn't killed and it doesn't cause war for the nation of Israel. Chapter 16, last week, we saw him in the middle of the wilderness, um, hoping that God and his character would restore goodness to him and take the curse that was meant for him. But this continued to grow. Absalom, David's son, continued to grow in his significance and in his power. And David's off in the wilderness. Now, David, though, is tremendously shrewd. Not only military, but also politically. Um, and so he sets up, as we've seen throughout First and Second Samuel, this very intricate spy system. Right? The born identity was actually based after David's life. Too many of you take that seriously. That's not true at all. Um, Leah, my wife, has told me often I need to work on my humor because people can't tell when I'm joking. So just make it clear, that's not true. That was a joke. Jason Bourne is not the true and better David. Um, but we do see within First and Second Samuel, David does set up this intricate network of spies. He's putting people in place, and he's always gathering information. And he continues to do that here in this situation. As he's off in exile, he's like, let me make sure that I keep people there in Jerusalem so I can kind of keep tabs on what Absalom is doing. And so he puts these people in place, namely this guy named 
Hushai, which we'll again, we'll hear about here in a second. I'm making sure we understand these characters because if we don't, then this chapter is just going to be a big blur. Hushai was one of David's followers that David said, hey, go to Jerusalem, pledge allegiance to Absalom, and be there to be able to send information back to me. So Hushai, good guy. We'll see here in a little while. Good guy for David there to be able to receive information. The way that he's sending information is through these priest's sons uh, named Ahimeaz and Jonathan. Right, again, Ahimeaz sounds like, oh, Old Testament Hebrew name, and then Jonathan. It's like, I don't know who names these people, but regardless, we have Ahimeaz and Jonathan. They are then kind of the ones that are carrying the information back and forth from Jerusalem to David. So we'll see them again here also in this chapter. Now, the whole problem is, is that there's this other character, which is a big problem for David, this guy named Ahithophel. Now, Ahithophel was the, one of the main advisors for David. He was the five-star general. He was, he was a military genius. Everything he said pretty much was the right thing to do. And this is how chapter 16 closed in verse 23, where it said, The advice of Ahithophel gave in those days was like someone asking about a word from God. That was the regard that people held for Ahithophel's advice. So you've got these two advisors around Absalom in Jerusalem. Ahithophel, bad guy, but really smart. And then Hushai, good guy, secret spy, uh, there for David. And so they're kind of battling against one another, trying to make sure that uh, Absalom doesn't win. You have these carriers of information, Jonathan Ahimeaz, carrying information back and forth to David in the wilderness. So this is where we are now. Spy system intact, David in the wilderness, Absalom with his two advisors, uh, uh, um, Ahithophel and Hushai, they're in Jerusalem. And so what's going to happen is... Absalom going to be able to extinguish David once and for all and take right to the throne? Or will God somehow undermine Absalom and restore David's kingdom? Who knows? Let's read and find out. We'll be in chapter 17 here this morning. If you got the Bibles uh, next to you, it's on page 277 and 278. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to take that with you. That's our gift to you. So we continue now in chapter 17, picking up what's going to happen here in the middle of this. Verse 1. Now, Ahithophel said to Absalom, remember, bad guy, to David's son, let me choose 12,000 men and I will set out in pursuit of David tonight. I will attack him while he's weary and discouraged, throw him into a panic and all the people with him will scatter. I will strike down only the king and bring all the people back to you. When everyone returns except the man you're looking for, all the people will be at peace. And this proposal seemed right to Absalom and all the elders of Israel. Then Absalom said, hey, summon Hushai, the archite, also. Let's hear what he has to say as well. So Hushai said to Absalom, and Absalom told him, uh, Ahithophel offered this proposal. Should we carry out his proposal? And if not, what do you say? Hushai replied to Absalom, the advice Ahithophel gave, has given this time, it's not good. Hushai continued, you know your father and his men. They're warriors and are desperate like a wild bear robbed of her cubs. Your father is an experienced soldier who won't spend the night with the people. He's probably already hiding in one of the caves or some other place if the troops uh, of some of our troops fall first. Someone is sure then to hear and say, there's been a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. Then even a brave man with a heart of a lion will lose heart because all Israel knows that your father and the valiant men with him are warriors. Instead, I advise that all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, as numerous as the sand by the sea, be gathered to you and that you personally go into battle. 
Then we will attack David wherever we find him. We will descend on him like dew on the ground, and not even one will be left, neither he nor any of the men with him. If he retreats to some city, then all Israel will bring ropes to that city, and we will drag its stones into the valley until not even a pebble can be found there. And since the Lord had decreed that Ahithophel's good advice be undermined in order to bring about Absalom's ruin, Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The advice of Hushai the archite is better than Ahithophel's advice. Hushai then told the priests Zadok and Abiathar, This is what Ahithophel advised Absalom and the elders of Israel. And this is what I advised. Now send someone quickly and tell David, don't spend the night at the wilderness ford, but be sure to cross over the Jordan or the king and all the people with him will be devoured. Jonathan and Ahimeaz were staying in Enrogel, where a servant girl would come and pass long information to them. They in turn would go and inform King David because they dare not be seen entering the city. However, a young man did see them and informed Absalom. So the two left quickly and came to the house of a man in Behurim. He had a well in his courtyard, and they climbed climbed down into it. Then his wife took the cover, placed it over the mouth of the well, and scattered grain on it so nobody would know anything. Absalom's servants came to the woman at the house and asked, Where are Ahimeaz and Jonathan? They passed by toward the water, the woman replied to them. The men searched but did not find them, so they returned to Jerusalem. After they had gone, Ahimaaz and Jonathan climbed out of the well and went and informed King David. They told him, Get up and immediately ford the river, for Ahithophel has given this advice against you. So David and all the people with him got up and crossed the Jordan. By daybreak, there was no one who had not crossed the Jordan. When Ahithophel realized that his advice had not been followed, he saddled his donkey and set out for his house in his hometown. He set his house in order and hanged himself. So he died and was buried in his father's tomb. David had arrived at Mahinam, and by the time Absalom crossed the Jordan with all the men of Israel. Now Absalom had appointed Amasa over the army in Joab's place. Amasa was the son of a man named Ithra the Israelite. Ithra had married Abigail, daughter of Nahash. Abigail was a sister of Zeruiah, Joab's mother, and Israel and Absalom camped in the land of Gilead. When David came to Mahinam, Shobai, son of Nahash and Rabbah of the Ammonites, Machir, son of Amiel from Lodabar, and Barzillai, the Gileadite, from Regalim, they brought beds, basins, and pottery items. They also brought wheat, barley, flour, roasted grains, beans, lentils, honey, curds, sheep, goats, and cheese from the herd for David and the people with him to eat. For they had reasoned, the people must be hungry, exhausted, and thirsty." in the wilderness. So here in chapter 17, it feels like a scene out of a spy movie. Maybe World War II and the Holocaust with the hiding places. You have people trying to hide informants, trying to make sure the uh, oppressive regime doesn't find them and kill them. In the midst of all of this, how in the world does, does this have anything to do with our lives today? Most of us won't be hiding in wells today, I would imagine. Most of us won't be on the run from an oppressive regime trying to kill us. And most of us aren't camping out in the wilderness hoping for honey, curds, sheep, goats, and cheese. So what does this chapter have to do with us? What, what I want us to do today is, uh, similar as last week, I want us to kind of run through the chapter real quick, make sure we understand kind of what the narrative that's uh, here in Second Samuel, how it's being taught, it's describing history, what this narrative is saying And when we get through that, I want us to then circle back and focus in on one verse, which is the key to this entire chapter. And then from that verse, we will then see 
how that can apply to our lives. So looking just running through the chapter real quick, first um, we see in the first four verses it begins with Ahithophel's advice to Absalom. Remember, Ahithophel, bad guy, general, really smart. There was uh, David's right-hand man had changed his allegiance now to Absalom. And he comes and says, Absalom, here's what you need to do to squash David out once and for all. And here's his plan. He says, let me choose 12,000 men. Notice in this description how many times he uses a first-person pronoun. Let me choose 12,000 men. I will set out in pursuit of David tonight. There's this urgency that Ahithophel has. He says, I'll go tonight. And when I go, I will attack him because he's weary and discouraged. I will throw him into a panic. I will strike down the only king, and I will bring all the people back to you. He's saying, listen, here's what needs to happen. Give me some men. I'll go out tonight, and I'll let everyone else live, but I'll take care of David. And whenever David is dead and he is no longer the leader, then this whole thing will be squashed, and all the rest of the people will come and follow you, and it'll be over. Now listen, Ahithophel was a smart man. This plan was absolutely going to work. There was no time, if he set out tonight, there was no time for David to be able to hear this and make any kind of counterattack or to be able to go and hide. Ahithophel was ready to to end it tonight. In verse 4, it looks like that's exactly what's going to happen. This proposal seemed right to Absalom and all the elders of Israel. That should have been it, right? That's the end of the story. But then all of a sudden, something happens in verse 5, which is strange. If Ahithophel was the man and his word was to be regarded as the word from God, why then does Absalom in verse 5 go, you know what, summon Hushai the archite also, and let's just hear what he has to say. Why not? We'll we'll circle back around to why that's so significant and why that was to happen, but, but we notice if that doesn't happen, then David's life ends. But right there he goes, oh, let's bring Hushai, and let's just, what could it hurt, right? Let's just hear what he has to say. And so notice then what he does in verse 6. Absalom then now gets Hushai's advice in, in verses 5 through 14. So you notice how much longer it is. Absalom, uh, Ahithophel is just four verses, but Hushai takes nine. Saying, now here's what you need to do. But, but Hushai has an advantage. His advantage is this, is that Absalom, David's son, doesn't just go, hey, what should we do? He begins and says, hey, here is, here is Ahithophel's plan, step by step. What do you think of that plan, and then what should we do? So he lays out what Ahithophel had said and allows Hushai, good guy, Hushai, Hushai the good guy, I didn't even think about that, but that one's, we're good to go now, Hushai the good guy. It allows Hushai the opportunity to poke holes in the plan and then set up a counterattack. So it's exactly what he does, right? At the very beginning, he says something kind of uh, uh, um, surprising as he begins verse 7 and says, the advice that Ahithophel has given you is not good. Wow, okay, Hushai, who do you think you are talking about Ahithophel's advice? Do you know the battles that he's won, the military He's writing the textbooks that the military students in Israel are studying right now, and you're saying that the advice that he's given is not good? But he continues. He doesn't even stop there. He then turns and says, well, you know your father and his men. He's reminding Absalom, don't you know? You know David. You know his mighty men. They're warriors, and they're desperate, like a wild bear robbed of her cubs. He's an experienced soldier. He's probably just hiding in one of the caves. If you went to try to take him out, you probably wouldn't even be able to find him. And whenever you took an army to go and try to find him, then if any sense that you guys were beaten and that then began to spread around Israel, no one would join with you because everyone knows just how strong of warriors David and his men are. And so he's poking holes in Hithophel's advice. Then he turns and begins to pet 
uh, Absalom's ego. So remember, Ahithophel's advice was all about me. He said, let me go. Let me, give me the army. I'll go take him out because Ahithophel knows I'm the best one here to do the job. But Hushai turns and goes, hey, listen, here's instead what you need to do in verse 11. Instead, get all the army from Dan to Beersheba. Get the whole army of Israel. And do you know how large your army is, Absalom? It's as numerous as the sand by the sea. The greatest army that this world has ever seen. And it can be gathered to you so that you can then personally go into battle. And you can go and squash this rebellion out. You can be the one that songs will be written about. You will be the one that monuments will be raised. You and your great army will be the one that pushes this whole rebellion to an end once and for all. And not just killing David like a Ithophel said, but you can squash out all the people that have rebelled against you so that there's no chance of a further rebellion. So let's just end this once and for all. Not even one will be left. That's what you need to go and do. And so he gives his speech and then he has to leave. And he doesn't know what Absalom's going to do. He's like, okay, I've given my best here, but now he needs to go and make sure that David hears what's going to happen because he doesn't know. Is he going to take his advice or follow Ahithophel's? So this is what happens then in verse 15 is we then get this information to the spies. Hushai then runs to go and tell these two priests, Zadok and Abiathar, who were there with David, that David had sent back into Jerusalem. And he said, listen, here was Ahithophel's plan. Here was my plan. Go and make sure David knows about it so that he can make the proper precautions. Send someone quickly. Tell David, don't spend the night in the wilderness tonight because Ahithophel may come for you tonight. And so the two spies, Jonathan and Ahimeaz, they run to go and tell this information. I love verses 17 through 21. It reads like a modern-day movie. Again, you, you have these two spies that are on their way, and the, the way in which information was passed, would the, the priest from Israel would tell a servant girl who would then leave the city and come to this outlying city where these two spies were. They would hear the information, and then they would go and tell David. They wouldn't come into the city just in case someone saw them. And so they made sure to set up this chain of information so they dared not be seen entering the city. But in verse 18, there was a young man that saw them. He saw him and went, oh, hold on, I know them. They're spies for David. And so he goes and tells Absalom, David has spies here within the city that wants to hear what it is that you're doing. And so the two spies left quickly. They came to this house of a man, and in this courtyard, they climbed down into the bottom of a well, and this woman put a covering over it and scattered some grain on top of it so you couldn't tell. And as they're in the bottom of a well, shaking, wondering if they're going to be caught or not, and then ultimately executed, they can hear the footsteps of Absalom's soldiers on top of them. They can feel the dust and the dust falling down as they are wondering, will they find out that this is where they are? But the woman redirects them in verse 20. says, oh no, they passed towards the water off yonder that way. Just head over there. You'll find them, I bet, eventually. And so they couldn't find them, and eventually they left. And after they'd gone, then the two spies climbed back out and went to go tell David everything that Hushai had told them. David, here's what Ahithophel said. Here's what Hushai said. You need to make sure that you leave tonight. And so by daybreak, there was no one who had not crossed the Jordan. So they got all the information out, and David was able to be safe. And then we see at the very end of the chapter, we get that long list of people's names who come and bring David and his men things to eat, places to sleep. And what we see there is these group, particularly three men that are highlighted, that are landowners that have a good bit to lose here in this war. And they go and they make a public claim saying, we're going to go in support of God's covenant king. And it may cost us everything. If Absalom wins, we're dying with him. 
but we're going to make sure that even before the battle is decided, in the midst of it, we're going to go and we're going to stand by the covenant king. And so he goes then to bring them uh, flour, barley, roasted grain, beans, lentils, honey's curd, sheep, goats, cheese for the people to eat because the people were hungry, exhausted, and thirsty there in the wilderness. Remember, David and these men, they're in exile. They're in the middle of the wilderness. It's like Groveland uh, there in the middle of chapter 17. They're just out in the middle of nowhere in the oppressive heat beating down on them. They're hungry, exhausted, and thirsty. And it's there that they're trying to figure out how are we going to go against this great army in Israel. So that's the situation that's painted. And as you read through it, we're kind of on the edge of our seat wondering, well, what's going to happen? It doesn't look good for David and his men. Sure, they've got some spies there, but goodness, there's not a chance they get out of this, right? We're on the edge of our seats, wondering, even in the middle of it, are these two spies even going to be able to get back and get back uh, to tell David what's happening? Is the king, uh, is Absalom going to listen to Hushai or to Ahithophel? Is David going to be strong enough to be able to go into battle? Who knows what's going to happen? And if you read through it, if you skip one of the verses, then that's this conclusion we may come to at the end of this chapter on the edge of our seats wondering, God, how are you going to work this out? What in the world is going to happen? But there is one verse that we didn't highlight as much that I want us now to circle back to and press in that gives us an understanding of the entire chapter and gives us an understanding really for the rest of 2 Samuel and helps give us an understanding of how God works. And that verse, which is the key to the whole chapter, it's the the theological linchpin in this uh, text, is verse 14. Circle back to it. This was right after Hushai had given his big spiel about what they needed to do. Look at what verse 14 says. Since the Lord had decreed that Ahithophel's good advice would be undermined in order to bring about Absalom's ruin, then Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The advice of Hushai the archite is better than Ahithophel's advice. Now, why is that significant? It's significant because we notice the conclusion that Absalom and the men of Israel, the elders, came to. And that conclusion was that, you know what? What Hushai said, better what Ahithophel said. Now, Hushai didn't know that. He wasn't there for that conversation and conclusion. But we as readers see that and we go, awesome. That's exactly what we'd hoped would happen. But here's what I want us to press in on. Because if we're not careful, we may read that and go, man, it's a good thing Hushai was so persuasive. He was able to poke holes in all the right ways and stroke Absalom's ego enough to to be able to get him to be blinded and go, yes, that is better advice. But notice the text doesn't stress how persuasive Hushai was. The text says in verse 14, the reason why that happened was because the Lord had decreed it. You see that in verse 14, since the Lord had decreed that Ahithophel's good advice would be undermined. And because that would be undermined, what would that do? It would then bring about Absalom's ruin. Therefore, the men concluded this. The foundation of verse 14 is God and his sovereign and providential will saying this is what will happen. And then chapter 17 is the outworking of how those details played out. God had decreed it, and so it was going to come to pass. Ahithophel's advice would be undermined. Absalom would be ruined. 
And then we as readers then read verses 15 through 29, not on the edge of our seats, but with anticipation, wondering how is God going to bring it about? Not if God is going to bring it about. It changes the way in which we see God in the middle of the wilderness, God in the middle of a war, God in the middle of impossible odds had decreed that Ahithophel's good advice would be undermined and that Absalom would be brought to ruin and that David's kingdom would be restored. And so it wasn't a question of if, but a question of when. And so here's what I want us to pull out then as we see this truth that God's will, what he decrees, his sovereign and providential will will come to pass. There is no king, there is no political regime, there is no Supreme Court majority, there is no president, there is no political party, there is no job, there is no circumstance, there is no tragedy in your life that can stop God's will from coming about. That which God decrees will happen. But here's what we need to understand and here's what we see about God's sovereignty and his providence here in this chapter. There's two things here in verse 14 that we see about God's providence. One, we see that it's secret. And two, we see that it's certain. God's will is often secret, but it is certain. First, it's secret. We see that because no one else in the chapter knew verse 14 existed. That truth that as we see it and then read the rest of the chapter, we go, oh, I wonder how this is going to turn out. That was not the case for Jonathan and Ahimaaz in the bottom of that well. They were not sitting there going, boy, I'm glad. I am glad that I didn't knock over that microphone. No, they said, boy, I am glad in the bottom of this well that I read verse 14. I know, this, I was, I know exactly how this is going to turn out. We are good to go. I read verse 14. Hey, Jonathan, remember verse 14? We're fine. You want to sing a song while we're down here? Because I know what happened in verse 14. They're at the bottom of the well wondering if they're going to die or not. God's will was secret from them. It was hidden from them. There in the wilderness as David sat there, tired, exhausted, hungry, responsible for these hundreds of people who had come with him, wondering, did I just lead them all into their own deaths? He himself is tired, exhausted, and hungry as he now faces his most personal enemy yet, his own son who wants to kill him. In the middle of that situation, David, as the king of Israel, now exiled in the wilderness, responsible for these people that may or may not live, who's having to go up and fight his own son. How is this going to turn out for David? He doesn't know verse 14 in this moment. He's not sure how the battle is going to turn out. They couldn't see it. And friends, often for us, as God's providence and his will and his sovereignty in our lives, it's not plainly evident to us. We can't make sense of the things that are happening around us, piecing it together, being able to go, oh, that's exactly God's will here. I know exactly what he's doing here as he's putting all these pieces together. I can see what's coming in my life, and I see everything that God is doing in the midst of it. This is totally cool. I'm not at all worried at all. That's not the way in which God's will is in our life. It's often hidden, and it's often secret. And God's sovereignty is seen in the rearview mirror, not in the windshield. Not as we look forward at our lives, but as we look back and then we begin to see, oh, that was God's hand guiding me through on the way, guiding me through these situations and along my life. As we look back, we can begin to make some sense of it, but not as we look forward and not as we look around. Goodness, you just think of one of the more popular stories in the Bible in the book of Job. Job was a man who experienced tremendous suffering and tremendous tragedy lost all of his children, lost all of his possessions. 
as great as just about anyone in the Bible, went through pain and suffering and tragedy. Why? Well, God gives us the ability to be able to see why in the book. At the very beginning, the, uh, Satan, the enemy, comes and says, Hey, God, I bet that if you turn over one of your servants to me and let me do whatever I want to to him, I bet I can get him to turn away from you. And God looks at Job and says, Have you considered my servant Job? God knew Job's heart, and he knew that Job would continue to be faithful no matter what Satan brought his way. And so God pulled back protection, let the enemy be able to assault Job with everything that he could, and so he threw everything at him, and Job lost it all. And what we see throughout it in Job's response has encouraged countless Christians and generations of those who follow Jesus. Because we're able to look and see, oh, there is others who have suffered. And look at how he responded, right? He says at the very beginning, as he then hears of his children's death, he goes and weeps, but he also worships and says, Blessed be the name of the Lord, for you give and you take away, but still I will say, Blessed be the name of the Lord. God, I can continue to worship you because you gave them. They were not mine. They can take them away. And I will continue to worship you knowing that you are sovereign. You have all this in, in your hand. And there is coming a day when you will make all things right. It doesn't make sense now, but I can continue to praise you. I can continue to worship you. And there is encouragement that's found there. But for Job, Job never knew the reason why. God never came down at the very end of the book. Job's questioning, God, why me? Why did this happen? Do you know what God didn't do? He didn't come down and go, Job, here's what happened, man. Let me explain it to you. Satan, you know, the enemy, the fallen angel, the guy who's trying to inflict evil into this world, I told him, hey, have your way because I knew how faithful you were. And not only that, Job, but through this circumstance and through your situation, you will be able to be an encouragement and a, 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 a barrier to evil for so many people's lives who will read about this afterwards, they will come to you and they will find hope because of how you're responding. God didn't say that to him. In fact, you read the end of Job and Job's like, God, why did you do this? God answers him and goes, hey, Job, where were you whenever I created the world? When I set up the pillars of the earth and hung the earth on the corners, like where, where, where were you? God doesn't give him the reason why. And Job turns at the end and goes, God, you are, you are greater than anything I can ever imagine. And even though he didn't know the answer why, he continued to praise him. And it wasn't until he got on the other side of eternity, there with God, that he was able to see why it had all happened. It was hidden from him. It was secret. And for so many of us, it's the same. We don't see exactly why God is doing what he is doing. On this side of eternity, there will be a day when we look back and it will make sense. But now, it's not guaranteed. But not only is God's sovereignty and providence secret, it's also certain. Because while we may not be able to see exactly how God is accomplishing his will, we can be certain that he is accomplishing his will. It will come to pass. The Lord had decreed that Ahithophel's good advice would be undermined. And that's exactly what happened. Yeah, yeah, but Caleb, Ahithophel was the man. It doesn't matter, the Lord decreed it. Yeah, but Hushai was just this kind of backwoods guy that was loyal to David that just showed up on the scene. It doesn't matter, the Lord had decreed it. But Absalom wanted to make sure to overthrow David. Was he really going to turn away an ear to the best advisor in the entire country? Yes, exactly, because the Lord had decreed it. It was certain. While it was secret, it was also certain that what God had said would come to pass did come to pass. And friends, that is an anchor to your soul. If you can grab a hold of that in the middle of waves and in the middle of wilderness and in the middle of tragedy, 
that to be able to hold on to and say, God, I don't know why this is happening necessarily. One day, I trust you that I can look back and see why, but now in the midst of it, I don't know why, but I trust that you are continuing to work all things together for your glory and for my good, that this is not outside of your realm, that this didn't catch you off guard, this wasn't a surprise, that you don't know how to respond right now, but that in fact, somehow, in the midst of your mysterious ways, you are working this very situation, both for my good and for your glory. And so because I know that your will is certain, I can trust you because you are not only uh, sovereign over all things, but you are also good. And so we lean into him. We lean into his promises that even whenever things seem like there's no way it could work out, we know that if the Lord has decreed it, it will come to pass. And so one very modern situation as we look and begin to bring this into our times is we see a culture here in America that is rapidly running away from biblical Christianity. And as that begins to to go in the opposite direction, there will be many who will say, well, let's continue to kind of head that way and maybe give up on some biblical principles so that we can try to continue to win people because we don't want to be obsolete because, goodness, if the culture completely runs opposite of who we are, then this church will be squashed. Why would people come if we stand in opposition? The Bible is in opposition to so much what the culture says. And if we lift our eyes and look at the waves, then people will follow after what the culture is doing. But friends, if we know what God has decreed, if we know what God has willed, and namely Jesus, as he looks at Peter in the New Testament, says, Peter, on that confession, on that rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. God has decreed that his church will continue. That there is no amount of culture wars, there is no amount of political regimes, there is no amount of oppressive governments that can squash God's kingdom here in this world through his church. And so we hold on to that and go, God, we know what you have said, and so we will continue to follow you even as cultures begin to shift. Even as people begin to throw your word out the window, we say, no, God, we will continue to follow you because we know what you have said. And that your, your kingdom, your church, made it through dictators, made it through places where it was illegal to be Christians, and we know that it can make it through a, a culture that begins to run opposite of your heart. And so we hold on to that, knowing that his will is certain, even though it may be secret. And so we see countless times in the Bible in which God is taking things that are meant for evil, that are meant to squash his kingdom, and he turns them for good. He turns them for his glory. This is the way that God works. Or we see in Genesis 50 with Joseph, as Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers and then had a really up and down relationship after that as he was going through, almost killed, imprisoned a couple of times. Things didn't look good for Joseph, but eventually God rose him up to the second in command in Egypt and brought a situation about where his brothers had to come to him and ask for help because there was a famine in the land. And when Joseph, years after they'd sold him into slavery, had the opportunity to confront his brothers, do you know what he told them? He didn't sell them into slavery. He didn't say, I told you so. He instead said, let me, let me teach you something about God. And he told them in Genesis 50, verse 20, he said that that which you meant for evil against me, God meant it for good. That you selling me into slavery, trying to kill me, God actually took that and he used it for good. That now I'm here in a position to be able to save my entire country in the middle of a famine. And God takes that which was meant for evil and he turns it for good over and over and over again. In the New Testament, kind of the sister verse to that in Romans 8, 28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. 
that even the evil thrown against us, God takes it and that which is meant for evil and he turns it for good. And so God's will, his decrees, they are secret, but they are certain. That no matter what comes our way, he's using all of it, both for his glory and our good. And we become certain then that God will do what is best. That then frees us to focus on something other than merely, merely trying to change our circumstance, but rather on knowing Jesus and making him known. Right? This is When we begin to get this down into our hearts, it changes our perspective entirely. If at the very end of our life, our goal is to say, God, I want an easy life. I want a comfortable life. I would like a life in which I could retire well, have a nice sized house, a good white picket fence, and a good car. I want to make sure to experience as little of pain as possible in this life. That is my goal. If that's your goal, then you will be focused on trying to control your life to get there, and then you will become anxious, and you'll begin to worry as that begins to spin out of your control, and you will be focused looking around trying to change the circumstances that aren't bringing comfort to your life because it feels like you're in control trying to make sure you get to that goal. When we begin to understand that God and his sovereignty is leading us on, that there may be times in which he leads us to plenty and there may be times that he leads us into the wilderness, that there will be good times and hard times, but God, I know that I'm not in control, but let me acknowledge that you're in control. Let me trust that you are working all things, both good and bad, for my good and for your glory. It then allows us to stop trying to focus on changing our circumstances and on just following God and glorifying him with our lives, whether it be in plenty or in want. Right? You look back at how all this started with David when he first heard that Ahithophel had gone over to give advice to Absalom. This was back in chapter 15, verse 31. What was his response? His response when they reported that Ahithophel was among the conspirators with Absalom, David pleaded, Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. Immediately, David hears it and goes, God, would you undermine his, his advice, his counsel? But then David turns as he continues in the wilderness and he writes a different prayer. As we see in Psalm 63, David writes this psalm in the midst of this circumstance, in the middle of the wilderness, and notice what his psalm is not focused on. It's not focused on changing his circumstances. It's not focused on, God, get me out of the wilderness. God, take Absalom out of the, the city. Bring me back into my kingdom. That's nowhere in his prayer. But all throughout the psalm, David's focused on one thing. God, I want to know you. I want to see you. I will praise you. You have held on to me, and I will continue to follow you. God, I will meditate on you in the watches of the night. I just want to see you and gaze at your beauty and your glory. David wasn't concerned with trying to just remove his circumstance. He was concerned with seeing and knowing God and his beauty and his glory. How much different is his prayer than ours if we were in that situation? If we were exiled, from our hometown, our son trying to kill us, in the middle of a wilderness, hungry, tired, exhausted, in the middle of Groveland with nowhere to be found, where, what would our song be like? What would our prayer be like? God, would you please change this? God, I am tired. I am exhausted. Please just get me back to my house. Get me back to the air conditioning. Get me back to, to a more comfortable place because this is miserable. Our prayer would be focused on our circumstances and God getting us back to comfort. Now, it's not wrong to pray that. David prayed that in verse 31. God undermined Ahithophel's advice. But notice, he gives a sentence about changing his circumstances and gives an entire song about seeing and knowing God. 
May that begin to be what our prayers look like. As we walk through this life and at times we walk through the wilderness, that we wouldn't focus solely on God changing our circumstances. Yes, God, we pray that you would remove those things. We pray for healing. We pray for you to be able to, to bring out of us out of the wilderness. But God, we know that you may not do that. You may keep us here. And so let us focus that in the midst of it, whether you answer the prayer or not, that we would see you, that we would know you, that we would experience you. Goodness, that you may even use this difficult situation. You may even use this pain, this tragedy, in this wilderness to bring us closer to your heart. And in some way, though this may be evil and hurt, we are still able to say it is still good because it is slowly shaping us into the image of your son. And we know that you are working all things together for our good, for those who love you and are called according to your purpose, that you are doing what is best. How can we be certain? that God does what's best in our lives, that he is decreeing that his will, that his sovereign will is bringing about what is best. But quickly, what the Bible tells us to do is tells us to look at God's provision in our past, God's promises for our future, and God's son in our place. I says, you want to know why I will do what's best for you? Look at my provision in the past. Look at your life. Look at the way I've been there all along. I've been beside you. I've been providing. I haven't left you or forsaken you. Right? Remember that. Right? I try to do this with my 10-month-old son. It doesn't really work that well. Every time he gets hungry, he starts to cry. And I go, Jack, listen, think about it. You've been alive for 10 months now, and I've fed you every day. Logically, just look, have a conversation with me. 10-month-old, come on, listen. Every day, well, don't cry. Just go, Dad, I'm hungry. I know you can't talk yet, but just imagine that. Just go, just give a whimper. And I'll go, oh, he's hungry. I'm not going to let you go hungry. Look at what I've done all throughout your life so far. I may or may not be helpful, but regardless... God, in a similar way, listen, the gap between me and my 10-month-old son is infinitely small compared to the gap between us and God. And God, as he's bending down, trying to get us to understand that what he's doing is best, that he is there with us, often we continue to cry, and I can imagine he's saying, remember what I've done for you every day of your life. Remember, look at my provision in the past. Also, look at my promises for your future. God throughout scriptures have said, I will never leave you or forsake you. That you will experience uh, tribulation in this world, but have heart because I have overcome the world. That God who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the returning of Jesus Christ. That God is working all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. God has given promise after promise after promise. And we so often just keep those aside, don't look at them, don't hold on to them, looking around at our circumstances going, God, what are you doing? What's going to happen? And God is saying, look at the promises that I've given you. I have your best in mind. It may not make sense now, but hold on to those promises for your future because they will come to pass. Look at my provision in your past. Look at my promise for your future, but also look at my son in your place. You want to know that I'm working all things for good? You want to know that I have your best in mind? Then remember this, that he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him give us graciously all things? Paul in Romans 8 is writing to the church and going, listen, do you want to know why God is for you and not against you? Look at the cross. Look and remember, he did not spare his own son, but he gave him up for us all in the place of you. He gave him up for you. So how then, and he connects it, how then will he not graciously give us all things with him? It doesn't mean he's going to give us everything we want, but it means he would give us everything we would ask for if we knew what God knew. He will give us everything to him. 
And so this is the confidence we have that God is working for our best. He's working for our good. That God, though his will may be secret, it is certain. And we can rest in that in hard times and in good, knowing that his will will come to pass. And there will be a day one day when we look back and it will all make sense. Because you see, David in this chapter, he didn't know verse 14. But he did know the God of verse 14. And it allowed him to rest in the middle of the wilderness whenever his life was up in the air and allowed him to be able to write Psalm 63 and, God, and go, God, I will seek to know you. I will praise you. And however this turns out, I can continue to trust you because I know that you are working all things for your good. So God's providence is un- the undercurrent of this whole chapter. Without it, we're on the edge of our seats wondering if David's going to even survive, if Absalom's going to overthrow him once and for all. But with it, when we read verse 14, we sit back and watch as God masterfully unfolds a story of divine redemption and surprising grace. So in our lives, may we lean on the sovereign God who's providentially working all things together for our good and his glory, that we'd be freed from the burden of having to try to fight for control of our lives and acknowledge that God is the one who's in control and find comfort there in that truth, that we can trust him to guide our lives and focus then in the middle of the wilderness or in the middle of Jerusalem, that we could focus on knowing him and making him known. So then in the middle of unknown or difficult circumstances, our prayers then would change from God, how can you change this? To then being God, how can you use this? Let's pray.